buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, we were caught slightly on the hop last week as news of Ukrainian gains on the battlefield came in too late for us to include. Sorry about that. Uh, We consider those this week and also the ramping up of Ukrainian drone strikes on targets inside Russia and in the Black Sea. Well, meanwhile, Moscow's ill-considered and ultimately counterproductive response to all this was to attack Ukrainian grain storage facilities and civilian apartment blocks, and also to threaten all civilian ships traveling through the Black Sea towards Ukrainian ports. And in Belarus, the Wagner Sagna rumbles on, you won't be surprised to hear, with Yevgeny Prigozhin making his first public statement in a while, and President Lukashenko telling Poland that it should thank him for keeping Prigozhin's men on a leash. As we've said many times on the podcast, you really couldn't make all this up. Let's start off by considering those Ukrainian battlefield gains and what they tell us about the overall prospects for the counteroffensive. Now, the big push was in Zaporizhia Oblast, sort of southeast of Zaporizhia City, where on 26th of July, it's quite a long way southeast, I've got a minute, better make clear, a large mechanized force of about 80 vehicles, that's tanks and armored cars, broke through Russian defensive positions south of Orykiv and advanced two and a half kilometers. Now, they continued this advance the following day. They liberated the village of, of Staromaryovka, and they also made gains near Bakhmut, uh, further to the north, where a Russian source claimed that Ukrainian forces had captured an unspecified height south of Bakhmud near Klishkivka on August the 1st, so at the beginning of the week. The day after the, the capture of Staromaryovka, the Institute for the Study of War, which we often quote, cited the Russian Vostok battalion commander, a guy called Alexander Khodorkovsky, as saying that Ukrainian forces could conduct strikes now against the full depth of defending Russian forces, and that these uh, attacks were actually well, killing people, but killing Russian commanders and uh, degrading the Russian command and control capacity. And it also noted, the institute that is, a report by the Ukrainian general staff, which said that the 247th Guards Air Assault VDV Regiment, which is you know one of their elite units, refused to go to, into combat near Staromaryovka due to the heavy losses that the Russians were suffering and uh, the success that the Ukrainians were achieving. So, you know, the statements coming out of, of Kiev, Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar said that uh, Ukrainian forces have captured two square kilometers of territory in the backward direction and 12 square kilometers in southern Ukraine. Doesn't sound like a lot, does it, Saul? But it's pretty significant, uh, wouldn't you say? Not necessarily a decisive breakthrough but signs of ongoing progress. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, as with everything, Patrick, we, we need to be cautious about reading too much into this and time will tell. But I do think the advance in Zaporizhia in particular is significant because its ultimate objective, the Azov Sea, is that bit closer, as is, of course, the strategic city en route, Melitopol. Now, according to satellite photos, the Ukrainians are almost through in that area in particular, the strongest layers of Russian defences and what lies beyond is nothing like as formidable. So we might, and I stress we might be getting closer to a key moment in the war. Both Ukrainian and US sources insist that the bulk of Ukrainian troops trained for and assigned to the counteroffensive have still not been used. So now, the way I read it, it's just a matter of timing uh, when the Ukrainians launch their major assault. And of course, they need to get that timing right. Don't just take it from me. Uh, we've mentioned him many times before, but one of the most incisive commentators of the war, Professor Phillips O'Brien at St. Andrews University, wrote something very similar in his weekend blog, and it was this. I do think we need to be very cautious in thinking that these advances represent anything like the main effort of the Ukrainians. It could just as easily represent a small ramp up of the efforts of the Ukrainians over the past few weeks. And again, it has not yet been confirmed how many of the brigades Ukraine has in reserve, which in uh, Phil's view is considerable. How many of those have been committed to battle? I have heard, says Phil, from some pretty reliable people, and here's the key bit of his blog, that a very large force of reserve still remains to be committed. Ukraine is not actually under immediate time pressure to step up ground attacks, and they will only do so if they really feel there is a weak spot in the line. Well, I've got something to say about that later on in answer to a question, but I'll turn first to what effect all this is having on the Russians. Two interesting developments this week. The first, a report from the UK Ministry of Defence that the Russian 58th Combined Arms Army in Western Zaporizhia, so the area where you know a lot of the effort is being made on the Ukrainian side, according to them, uh, the MOD, they are going to be struggling with severe fatigue, according to their assessment. And they say that uh, elements of the 5th Combined Arms Army, which, which is a bit further south, are pretty much begging to be taken out of the front line, saying that they're not being rotated. And they also reported the UK MOD that Russian commanders in the uh, southern part of the front are struggling with ammunition shortages, lack of reserves, and uh, seem to be you know, having great difficulty securing the flanks of defending units. That, of course, being very significant. That's where uh, you need to, that's what you need to shore up if you're not going to get overwhelmed. So all that suggests a more decisive Ukrainian breakthrough is possible. Also, backing it up in a sort of um, roundabout way is the bizarre statement by the Russian former president, Dmitry Medvedev, actually most of which what he says is pretty bizarre, so this doesn't come as any great surprise. He said that if this carries on, Moscow will be forced to use a nuclear weapon. He said, imagine if the offensive, which is backed by NATO, was a success and they tore off part of our land, i.e. the land they've stolen from Ukraine, then we'd be forced to use a nuclear weapon according to the rules of a decree from the president of Russia. There would be no other option. Now, the fact that Medvedev suggests that the counteroffensive may produce decisive results, I think is pretty telling and shows that Moscow is very concerned. Now, we also mentioned at the top of the pod that Ukraine uh, is ramping up its drone attacks away from Ukrainian territory. Um, we mentioned this before, of course, even last week. Now, as these are Ukrainian drones, it allows Kyiv to get around the NATO embargo not to use its kit for attacks on Russian territory. 
Well, twice last week, long-range drones struck office blocks in Moscow. Not any old office blocks, though. No, these blocks were occupied by the Ministry of Defence and, in particular, its cyber warfare unit. That first attack, of course, we mentioned last week. Now, in his latest update, our cybersecurity expert, David Alexander, had something very interesting to say about this. And he wrote that these attacks are significant because they tell the Russians, and I quote, not only do we know where you are, but we can hit the exact floor that your office is on with our drones. And the second attack, a few days later, hit the offices of another army unit in the same building. Of course, this all means that the Russian anti-missile and drone defenses are not as effective as they would like and causes more uncertainty and unrest among the civil population. And this is a point I would back up because I think what these attacks are trying to do is bring home to ordinary Russians that they too cannot escape the effects of the war. Or as President Zelensky put it after the second attack, and I quote, gradually the war is returning to the territory of Russia, to its symbolic centers and military bases. And this is an inevitable, natural and absolutely fair process. A Daily Telegraph report quoted a resident of Moscow agreeing with all of this because he told the Bereg website, I have repeatedly said that it is not very safe here. I want to leave Russia. We plan to do this in November, but most likely this will now happen earlier. So is there any sense in all of this, Patrick? I mean, what's your feeling? Are these long range drones doing more good than harm to the Ukrainian cause, do you think? Uh, I think it's all positive from a Ukrainian perspective. As David says, it's fascinating that they can actually pinpoint with such accuracy these completely legitimate targets. They're taking great care not to hurt any civilians. They've been conducted at night, apparently in advance of the previous, I think there've been seven since May, having their drone attacks. A lot of people are working from home in these sort of sensitive government offices. So yeah, so far so good on the kind of uh, international stage. The moral high ground is still very definitely in Ukraine's hands. But beyond that, I think these attacks fundamentally undermine Putin's narrative of the war, don't they? So when it started, you know, if you were living in Moscow, there were no attacks on on your city. You were told uh, by state media, by the boss himself, that the operation that was going on was going to be short, sharp, surgical, and removing a potential danger from you. Now, 17 months and about how many, 100,000 at least dead Russian boys later, drones are slamming into the capital, into the very heart of government. And despite all the boasting they've done about how strong the air defenses are, Putin can't really seem to do anything to stop them. Despite that, story in the in the Telegraph. I don't think this will create too much concern among Muscovites about their own personal safety, but it does yet again expose the hollowness of Putin's rhetoric and as time passes of his power. Okay, well, let's now consider what Russia has been doing in a positive sense, or at least attempting to do in a positive sense in response to the various Ukrainian attacks. Well, as usual, it's been disproportionate and ill-considered because only yesterday, Russia used drones to attack and set fire to Ukrainian grain storage facilities in Odessa. And this, of course, follows Russia's refusal to extend the Black Sea grain deal that allowed for exports of Ukrainian grain. And also it follows threats last week to impose a de facto blockade on Ukrainian ports by regarding all vessels heading to Ukrainian ports as legitimate targets. Moscow, it should be said, did quickly row back on this last threat by claiming that the announcement meant the Russian forces would inspect ships and not necessarily sink them. But I suspect a little bit of the damage 
had already been done. And and we also had the summit, Patrick, which I think some of the stuff that was going on in the Russia-Africa summit was significant. Can you uh, let us know about that? Yeah, this is um, a summit in St. Petersburg. Just before we get on to that, Saul, you know, when we talk about these retaliatory strikes, I mean, these are completely cynical. I think there was one in Kherson that uh, missile hit a clinic there, killing a a doctor. There was another one in the uh, Kharkiv area, which killed an old lady. So, you know, for all their propaganda attempts to, to portray what's happening in the Moscow drone attacks as Ukrainian terrorism, it doesn't really bear very close examination. Now, back to this summit in St. Petersburg. Now, you know, if you're deliberately setting out to shut down Ukraine's ability to export its grain and its oil seed, which is clearly what's going on here, well, a lot of the customers for this stuff are the very people you're hosting in St. Petersburg, i.e. the heads of African states. So it's not really a good look when you're trying to portray yourself as a friend of Africa. Now, Putin tried to mitigate the effects of this campaign by promising to send 25,000 to 50,000 tons to six African countries in the next three or four months, all for free. But uh, that didn't really produce a very warm response from various high ups in the African Union Commission. The chair, Musa Faki Mohammed, told the summit that disruptions to energy and grain supplies must end. And both he and uh, the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, explicitly called for the grain deal to be revived. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like it's all rebounding on Putin. And I can't think of a single positive act that they've carried out in the last few weeks and indeed months that actually is anything other than, you know, as I say, a a kind of shooting of its war effort in the foot. But let's move on to Belarus, because we need a bit of light relief, Patrick, don't we? Uh, And in that bizarre country, President Lukashenko has ramped up the tension with neighbouring Poland by taunting the Poles over the presence of Russian Wagner mercenaries near their joint border. On Tuesday, he mockingly told Poland it should thank him for keeping in check Wagner mercenaries now stationed in Belarus after an aborted mutiny against the Kremlin last month, which, of course, we've spoken about extensively. The Belarus state news agency Belta quoted him as saying that the Poles should, and this is a direct quotation, pray that we're holding on to the Wagner fighters and providing for them. Otherwise, without us, they would have seeped through and smashed up Rezhov and Warsaw in no small way. So they shouldn't reproach me. That's the Poles, of course. They should say thank you. I mean, it's just utterly <laughs> bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Great name for a, for a news agent, isn't it? Belter. I heard it on Belter. Uh, excellent. Um Anyway, should we be worried? Well, I don't think so. I think it is all, as you say, the theatre of the absurd that you'd get quite a lot of in uh, in Belarus. And as we've pointed out, I think before, there's a you know massive imbalance of forces here. If it did actually come to the crunch, then uh, the combined forces of Poland and NATO would make short work of Wagner. But NATO is, having said all that, NATO is taking it seriously. And they've put out a statement saying that if uh, Wagner troops did cross the border, this would definitely trigger Article 5, which would mean war with Russia. So now that we've got that straight, I think we can all uh, sleep easily tonight. But old Prigozhin has popped up again, hasn't he? It's all. <laughs> yeah, he has. I mean, bizarrely. I mean, honestly, if you think what happened just a few weeks ago, leading this uh, assault on 
the very heart, frankly, of Putin's power in Moscow and getting within, what, what did we think, about 150 miles, then banished to Belarus. And the assumption among a lot of Western commentators and amateurs was that Prigozhin uh, was shortly for the chop, but not a bit of it. He was then seen in meetings very shortly after with Putin in Moscow. And now he's popped up actually at the summit itself. So that's the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg, underlining the fact that despite the mutiny, he is still a major Russian power broker, or at the very least someone, and I suspect it might be the latter, someone Putin doesn't dare to arrest, unlike, of course, the aforementioned Gherkin, the ultra-nationalist who finally crossed the line or one line too many. Now, a day or two later, according to the ISW, Prigozhin announced that and I quote, unfortunately, a few Wagner personnel agreed to transfer from the Wagner group and joined other unspecified Russian security services, likely the Russian MOD. So at least some of those people that Putin had tried to entice away from Wagner, it seems, have actually gone into the kind of formal Russian security apparatus. But there are also many more who've gone to Belarus, as we now know. Okay, we'll take a break there. Do join us in part two when we'll be answering listeners' questions and giving you a little more info on David Alexander's latest security update, which is full of fascinating stuff. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Well, first, we'll uh, give you a little bit of the update that we promised from David Alexander's latest update. He, of course, is our resident cyber security man. Uh, and he wrote a number of things. I've already mentioned one, of course, which related to the attacks on the office blocks. But he also pointed out that Russia has recently convicted a man called Ilya Sakov, who was CEO of a major Russian cybersecurity company, and he was convicted of treason. Now, he's received, according to David, a prison sentence of 14 years. And this is another example of trumped-up charges used to silence Sakov and intimidate others from speaking out. He was arrested quite a while ago, in September 2021, apparently, but he has been a thorn in the side of the authorities for years because, and here's the interesting bit, he exposed cybercrime operations and corruption within the Russian state. And his conviction in David's eyes only goes to prove that he was causing pain to somebody in power who probably had a lot to lose if their part in criminal activities was exposed. Now, he goes on to say uh, something called the Computer Emergency Response Team of Ukraine, CERT UA for short, uh, which is working for the Ukrainian State Service of Special Communications, has released a high-level report describing the current tactics, techniques, and procedures employed by the Armageddon Gamma Radon Group. And this is one of the most active and capable hacking groups working for the Russians. It includes in its ranks, interestingly enough, turncoat Ukrainian operatives of the old security service who have inside knowledge of some of the Ukrainian cyber infrastructure and intelligence organizations, 
And this group conducts cyber espionage against targeted systems within the Ukrainian security and defense forces and have been attributed as a threat actor in at least one disruptive attack on a data center. So we've been talking before about how, you know, in many ways, the West generally and Ukraine in particular has negated uh, Russian threats. But this is actually uh, quite a significant one. Now, according to CERT UA, the number of infected computer devices operating mostly within information and communication systems of public agencies, and that, of course, is in Ukraine, can reach several thousands at a time. The Russians use time-honored techniques, according to David, such as infected emails and messages on social media channels to infect the target system. A running battle is in progress to find and disinfect systems faster than the bad guys can infect new ones and to limit the amount of data loss. For people like me, that's David, it's a fascinating read. No really new attack and compromised tactics, just old ones rehashed. So the war is ongoing, uh, which is the overall point. All right, on to the questions. Here's the first one from Felix Dare, and he writes, Thanks for this and love the pod. I wonder what you make of the below assessment from Mark Urban on the counteroffensive, and in particular, his assessment that reserves are now largely committed. Um, and as Felix says, he's paraphrasing. He's then given us a link which Patrick has had a look at. So Patrick, what does it say and what's your feeling about Mark's point? Well, first of all, Mark Urban listeners will remember he's been interviewed on the podcast. We both know Mark well. He's a very, very distinguished BBC journalist, former soldier himself, great uh, defence and security expert. What Mark says on his, on his Twitter feed is, is just a very brief comment. Two-month stocktate on the offensive. How far has com Ukraine committed its strategic reserve? What does that tell us? And the view is elements of most of the reserve brigades have been committed. Reserves are now limited. Ukrainian breakthrough may still be possible, but it looks less likely. Uh, well, we talked about this earlier on, but I think it's worth returning to this subject because um, from what the uh, people we quoted said, but also from what we personally have heard from our friends inside Ukraine, it is not the case that all the, all the new armor and the newly created brigades have been thrown into the fight as yet. And people, we know, got intelligence links there, say that really, just to reiterate this point, the battle, the big battle is joined, but the big push has yet to come. And the word is that um, one thing that we've learned is that the Bush Telegraph in Ukraine is very efficient. And when there's something big going on, there is an immediate buzz. Now, this may not sound very scientific, but it is a pretty good yardstick. And uh, everyone remembers that when the big counteroffensive operation began in the Northwest back in September last year, the news spread like wildfire. Everyone knew about it very, very quickly. Now, this hasn't happened this time, and that would seem to suggest that the picture being painted officially is largely accurate, a, a picture of slow, incremental, but significant progress. Yeah, and I'm slightly surprised Mark's uh, fallen into what I would say is a bit of a trap, which a lot of Western commentators and journalists have fallen into, which is that they aren't seeing immediate progress. They're, they're reverting very quickly back to the pessimistic stories. And I've also made the point that the pessimistic stories have an effect. They have an effect on politicians, and you need to be very careful. Now, Mark, I'm sure, would say, look, he's spoken to enough people, he's seen enough data to suggest that he's right. But as Patrick and I have already pointed out on this program, on this episode and previous episodes, there is a lot of countervailing argument and expertise that says the opposite. So I personally think it's, it's relatively irresponsible to talk in such pessimistic terms when it's clear that the bigger battles are yet to come. But we'll move on from that. Have you got a favorite you want to answer next, Patrick? 
Well, I'd, I'd be the last to uh, to accuse Mark of being irresponsible. He's a very fine journalist, um, and he must have his reasons for saying that. If indeed I've, I've quoted that correctly, it's, it's slightly ambiguous, actually. Anyway, moving on. This is something that I've noticed, sort of, maybe you have too, when we're looking at the interactive maps that the ISW puts up. There's always a little kind of... Um, a bit of shading around Melitopol. And when you look at the legend, it says uh, this means it's an area of partisan activity. And this has been the case for many months. What's going on there? Have you, have you noticed that? So, I mean, my feeling is that maybe they just put it up there and left it there because I've been looking out for the progress of any kind of partisan campaign. And, and we all remember at the start of the war, there was quite a lot of partisan activity, behind the lines activity, assassination, sabotage, etc. But it does seem to have tailed off. Lately, the last reference I can remember is a couple of Rosgvardia personnel being killed in the Kherson area. And that, that was some months ago now. And I think the picture there is that, uh, you know, inevitably, as the Russians tighten their grip on, on these newly conquered areas or areas conquered since the start of this phase of the war, uh, they're going to crack down. And there have indeed been reports of villages being searched and the inhabitants terrorized, whether a suspected partisan activists. But so this makes it very difficult for conventional partisan groups to operate. By that, I mean Maquis-style bands roaming around like they did behind the German lines in World War II in Belarus and uh, Western Russia. I think the use that partisans have for the Ukrainians in the current circumstances is really kind of intelligence gathering, transmitting intel and sending it back to the to the military, enemy locations, et cetera, for them to act on. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, overt partisan activity is incredibly dangerous. I mean, the, the great moment in the uh, Second World War at D-Day, the, the big question is when do the French actually come out? And if they come out too soon, that, of course, is the, the French resistance. If they come out too soon, they're going to be left high and dry. And there were instances of that. So it's almost all, always, in a sense, a timing issue. And I think as the counteroffensive gathers steam, if indeed it does, you will see more uh, partisan activity because there will be a good chance that they can then be relieved, as it were, uh, by the advancing Ukrainian troops. But that there is low-level partisan activity all along the line. There is absolutely no question. And as Patrick says, much safer to be providing intelligence than actually committing overt acts of assassination and sabotage. Interesting one here from Richard, who is uh, wondering uh, what the best approach is to the Kerch Bridge. He asks, do you destroy it and trap Russian forces who could fight like trapped rats and inflict heavy Ukrainian casualties, or let it remain and let the Russian forces escape, which could cause issues later? What's the best course of action? What do you think, Saul? Yeah, it's an excellent question, actually, but I think there is a, a pretty straightforward answer to it. Um, the Kerch Bridge, we should orientate people in case they've forgotten, is the one at the eastern end of Crimea that was built by the Russians in 2018, Putin's great project, to, of course, connect the Crimea to mainland Russia and show for the rest of time that uh, Crimea was going to be part of the fatherland. My response to Richard's question is definitely destroy it. Why? Because what you're really trying to do is affect the course of the war before it becomes clear that the Russians have to evacuate Crimea and indeed Kherson and, and some of the other provinces to the north. So the dual target, I think, for Ukrainian troops at the moment is to reach the Azov Sea, as we've mentioned many times, which, of course, will split 
the land forces in occupied Ukraine, but also cut off the Kerch Bridge for the simple reason that it is used logistically to supply the armies both in Crimea and in also in the southern occupied Ukrainian provinces. So we're really talking about a logistical issue here. And we know that the recent attack, the, uh, the marine drone attack, has already affected supplies coming in. And the move, certainly it's affected the movement of tourists. I mean, we, we spoke about, didn't we, tragically, the loss of life among the Russian tourists. But we also asked the question, what were they doing there, moving into a war zone? Uh, it is a little bit like the effect the drones are having on the Russians in Moscow. They need to know if their president is going to lead them into a, a war of aggression, that there are consequences. So, But the simple answer is you, you take out the bridge because it makes it much harder for the Russians to supply their troops in occupied Ukraine. Yeah, I'd uh, agree with you on that one. That was a bit of an interesting kind of quasi-philosophical question, re really, here from Ivaras Gulbinas. Do you remember? He's a loyal a loyal correspondent uh, <laughs> who's, you know, I think, one of the first people to send us an email. So, hello again, Ivaras. Thanks very much for this one. He says, he's actually got several questions, but the one that interests me particularly is when he asks what is going to happen in Ukraine after this war ends. He talks about veterans coming back. There'll be a huge number of men who've been living in horrendous and violent conditions who might be infected by that very violence and introducing them into a peacetime environment uh, may have very bad uh, consequences uh, for society is what he's getting at. He asks a supplementary question. Is there any experience in the UK dealing with veterans coming from Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, was the UK successful in this? Well, I'd, I'll start off, all of you don't mind. That, yeah, that's a huge question. I don't think, Ivaris, the comparison you make with the U UK and Afghanistan is um, is relevant, as these are very small wars. They involve tiny numbers of troops, comparatively speaking. So the impact on society has been minimal, even though the British Army has done its bit to sort of deal with, with, with potential psychological problems that impact on, on the those around the, the returning soldiers. But what's happening in Ukraine, with the war being fought in Ukraine, is pretty much total war. So you've got to look back uh, to the two world wars to get an idea of how this might play out. And I think the fundamental question is um, determined by whether you win or whether you lose. So if you take the First World War, a conflict that um, you know, many have compared to what is in, happening in Ukraine now. Well, in Germany, the defeated army returned. The, many of them were full of rage, full of hate. Uh, and instead of diminishing their appetite for killing, the experience of war actually seemed to have stimulated it. So they formed up into Freikorps. Uh, these were these sort of far-right um, paramilitary groups attacking the democratic politicians. They said had stabbed them in the back. Now, that's just a scenario I might see playing out in Russia, but not in Ukraine, given that I think we, on this side anyway, feel that it's, they're going to emerge victorious. There, there will definitely be plenty of uh, traumatized soldiers and civilians, lots and lots of people whose lives are going to be blighted by their, their experience. And this, of course, will impact on society in the shape of broken marriages, addictions, antisocial behavior, depression, suicide. But at least the problem is getting attention Lots of programs, official programs and policies being worked out or in place already, large and well, there are lots of private ones as well. In the latter category, I'm thinking of friends of the podcast like Julius Strauss, who's working on uh, rehab programs for traumatized troops at uh, the Wild Bear Ranch 
lodge he owns in uh, northern British Columbia. And Askol Krusilnitsky, as well, who we often mention on the podcast, is also investigating turning his property in Ukraine into a therapy center for PTSD sufferers. What about you? What's your view on this, Saul? Yeah, I, I wouldn't dismiss the, the British example as readily as you, Patrick, actually, because I think in a, in a smaller way, but in a, in a very real way, it, it emphasizes what can happen to veterans when they've seen this type of brutal combat and, and how it affects them. So we know, don't we, that for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, possibly longer, a significant proportion of the British prison population is ex-military. Uh, and of course, as we've fought more wars, that number inevitably has gone up. So you could extrapolate out from that and say, you're absolutely right, Patrick, it hasn't been a major problem for British society because there are relatively small numbers of soldiers and professional soldiers exposed to this. But if you extrapolate out from that, even with all the great work that we hope will be done, and you've already pointed out a number of initiatives, you can still see a whole population traumatized by what they've been through and win or lose, but it will matter, of course, whether they win or lose, but win or lose, you do have a lot of potentially destabilized people who've got used to killing and it will find it difficult as all combat veterans do to return to civilian life you know, I think back to my last book, Devil Dogs, when this wonderful character, Eugene Sledge, returns home, goes on to become a professor of biology. But all he can think for the first few years as he's wandering around the streets is, you know, these guys have got no idea. I'm a natural born killer. I've been turned into a killer. And of course, he doesn't actually kill anyone. But some of his comrades, a little bit less stable, less thoughtful, less philosophical than him, uh, became a bit more of a problem. So it's a very good question, Ivaris, and it's another of those, you know, those horrendous consequences you get for a conflict like this. But let's hope, as Patrick says, the Ukrainians do end up winning in inverted commas this war because it will lessen the effect a little bit. Yeah, I mean, this has been something that has exercised a lot of minds, uh, you know, artistic, creative minds. Uh, by strange coincidence, last night I was watching an old movie, William Wyler movie called The Best Years of the of our lives, which is about three vets returning home at the end of the war to find this you know, apparently indifferent society, to find their home lives all disrupted. The way they look at the people, the way that people look at them is completely different. And this, of course, is in a country which didn't actually really feel the war. Uh, it was many thousands of miles away from the uh, from the actual fighting. So you know, in Ukraine, uh, you are everyone is involved, everyone has experienced, everyone has uh, a death, everyone has heard an explosion. So it's going to be all the more difficult a problem, I think. But And the other thing, which we we did talk about uh, in one of our earlier broadcasts, is the way that society itself is going to be completely changed by this experience. It's going to be inevitably be a militarized society for good or for bad. So there are many, many problems lying ahead. All right. Question here from Richard in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, and he writes, I was interested I was interested to know whether Ukraine has adopted total war in terms of its industries, etc. Or are there some sectors, parts of the country that are operating as usual? Patrick, what do you think? Well, I don't really know the answer to that. But uh, Saul and I will be in Ukraine next week. So we might be able to be better informed about it when we return and uh, resume broadcasting. So uh, listen out for our more informed answer in a future episode. Great stuff. All right. That's all we have time for. We will be back next week, as usual, with the big interview and also all the news. And we'll be answering listeners' questions on Friday. Goodbye. Goodbye.